It's great to see you all here this morning and uh, to continue our studies on the Sabbath day. And as we do this, I hope that your mindset is not one of, all right, here we go again. Uh, it's going to tell me how I can't enjoy my day and so on. But actually have the opposite, that we're actually considering what God has appointed for us to enjoy Him, to glorify and enjoy Him. Our first catechism question and answer is that God has designed us to enjoy and glorify Him forever. And we tend to think of that forever only being like in a life to come, but now as well. There's an enjoyment of God that takes place now. And the Sabbath day is given for that. The uh, Puritans often call it the marketplace of the soul. Whether the soul goes to feed itself, to be ready for the week, to uh, enjoy company, to know what's going on. To, to just have fellowship with one another. So I hope we can look at it in that way instead of, of in a Pharisaic way. Oh, here it is, the things that uh, we can do, the things we can't do. Even last week, that's a lot of the questions that I got afterwards. So let's not worry about right now what we can do or can't do. And let's figure out what the Bible teaches about it. And at the moment that you're... Uh, at the moment, you have to be careful what is your heart attitude when you're asking about what you can do or not. Or not. It's almost as if we're trying to work, walk as close as possible to uh, something else while still keeping outward obedience to whatever it is that the Lord says. So um, the scripture is so rich, and there's so many things that the Lord teaches us concerning the Sabbath that if you just focus on those things, you don't have to worry about um, what we can't do on that day. So we're continuing our study on the Sabbath day. We're using uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 21, to um, guide us in the study. We have looked at paragraphs 1 through 6 that talk about the worship, what's, what's proper in the public and private worship of the Lord. And now we're going to go to paragraph 7. I'll, I'll, I'll put the text on the screen, but if you want to follow along, that's page 861 of your hymnal. Uh, using the little numbers on the bottom instead of the big numbers on top. So, um, Confession, chapter 21, paragraph 7 says this. And why, if, even before we read it, why are we using the confession for, for this? Because that's exactly it. That is our confession. That's what we confess to be true as a church. Uh, we confess these things are true. That's our standard of practice. It's not the scriptures, but it's a good summary of what the scriptures teach in the areas that it addresses. So, paragraph 7 says the following, As it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in His Word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath a particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Even before we, we start breaking this apart and, and see what it means, I want us to consider the importance of the Sabbath day. Uh, there's great 
importance for it, and the scriptures teach that. And we're actually going to use our Bibles quite a bit today, so if you grab a, grab a Bible close to you. The, the keeping and remembering of the Sabbath day is part of the Ten Commandments, if you weren't aware of that. Uh, it's not something that uh, is just randomly found in the scriptures. It's the core, at the core of uh, the Ten Commandments. If you open to Exodus chapter 20. That's the f- first formal giving of the Ten Commandments. And if you look at verse 8... <clears throat> It says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. All right, just looking at chapter 20, what do you notice about the fourth commandment? It's the longest of them all. Yes, it's the longest of them all. It's the only one that God explains why you should keep it and how you should keep it as well. So... Um, and a word count is not the most important thing as far as determining something as important or not. But it tells us something that this is the one that the Lord thought necessary to elaborate. Perhaps he knew, not, not perhaps, I'm just being facetious. Perhaps he knew that his people would struggle with this command uh, throughout history. But this, no, no, not, not, this is not the only place that we find the, the Ten Commandments officially Listed, we have here in the beginning of Israel's wilderness journey. They're at Mount Sinai. They haven't yet been told they're going to spend 40 years in the desert. They're getting ready to go to the promised land. But then they sin, and they're cursed for it, and they all are condemned to sleep, to die in the wilderness. And then at the end of the journey, the Lord again restates the Ten Commandments. So if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is 38 years plus after... Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have again the restating of the Ten Commandments in a formal way. In verse 12, it says this in Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, 
Therefore, the Lord your God commended you to keep the Sabbath day. So the basis for why the people of God should keep the Sabbath day in Deuteronomy 5 is God's redemption. Remember what was the basis in Exodus 20? It was different. Deuteronomy 5 is that you keep the Sabbath because God is a redeemer. In Deuteronomy, in Exodus 20, it's a different explanation which tells us that both of them are explanations for the Sabbath, is that you keep the Sabbath because God is the creator. So two attributes of God, God the creator and God the redeemer, are the basis for our keeping of the Sabbath. And as we're going to see a little later, if that's why the people have got to keep the Sabbath, then as long as those two things are true, the Sabbath should be kept. If it demonstrates that God is a creator and that God is a redeemer, if that's the basis for the command, then as long as those two things are true, then the command stands. So when God ceases to be the creator and when God ceases to be the redeemer, then that's when we can stop observing the Sabbath day. And when is that going to be? Never. That, again, this is you know, being a bit facetious in that question there. If you look at the scriptures of the Old Testament, uh, one of the things that Israel got the most trouble for was for not keeping the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is a sign of loyalty to the Lord and to His covenant. All right, I told you we're going to use our Bible a lot today. Um, find the book of Ezekiel and uh, go to chapter 20 in the book of Ezekiel. As Ezekiel called God's people back to faithfulness, as, as Ezekiel called, called God's people back to God's law, he pointed out that the Sabbath is uniquely important to God's people as a revelation of God to them. So here is Ezekiel saying, hey, you've sinned. So where, where are God's people when Ezekiel is writing to them in the history? They're in Babylon. They're captives. They're in Babylon. And Jeremiah specifically says that you're in Babylon because you you do not keep the Sabbath. That's the main sin that got, 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 got God's people taken captive. So now Ezekiel is ministering to them while in captivity, calling them back to obedience to God's law. And this is what he says, starting in verse 12. Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath. So it's God speaking to the prophet. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I have brought them out. So what is it saying? that In the wilderness itself, the people of God, even God had just given them a Sabbath or profaning them. And God had enough reason to destroy them then. But for God's own name's sake, he didn't as a testimony to those nations that were around them. Verse 15, So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, 
flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all ends, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbath. It's interesting that we, always, we, also, we often think that the main reason why they didn't go into the promised land was because the spies, remember in Numbers 13-ish, the spies were in the promised land, and they came back, and then they said, um, well, it's too dangerous, uh, we're too scared, and then they don't go in, and then they try to go in, and God says, you know what, forget it, you're done. That was just a straw, the, the proverbial story that broke the camel's back. The fact that they had disregarded the Lord's Sabbath was a main contributing factor for their having to spend all that time wandering in uh, the wilderness. There in verse 16, it continues, For their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them from destruction. I do not make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defy yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So you see here in verse 20 that the Sabbath is a covenantal sign that reveals that Yahweh, you notice there, the all capital Lord, that's a transliteration or a translation uh, attributed to the covenant name of God, his proper name, Yahweh, is a God to his people. So the Sabbath is one way that we show that God is Lord and that the God of the Bible is our, our God. The disregard of the Sabbath profanes God's name. In verse 22, God says, Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. It refers back to his name. So the, the, the not observing the Sabbath as the Bible calls us to observe, is a pro, it profanes the name of the Lord. And he's merciful, and he'll put up with it for a while, but he's not going to uh, allow it to continue indeterminately. I, I believe that one of the reasons the church in the United States and, and throughout the world is so weak today is because we have just forsaken the Sabbath. Uh, we decided it's ours. That's true of tithing as well. Everything that, that, a lot of the things that actually tell God that He is our Lord, we've forsaken it and have pursued our own ways. <clears throat> it's interesting that Isaiah, in a section of his book dealing with Gentiles being part of God's church, equates keeping of the Sabbath with holding fast to God's covenant. In, if you go back to Isaiah, you look at the starting verse uh, in chapter 55. He's dealing with Gentiles being brought into the kingdom of God. He's dealing with us. And in that section, he talks about the Sabbath as being an important thing, where he says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner... Who is that? Gentiles, the nations, us. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has... By the way, if one good thing to do is to get your Bible, and every time the word Gentile is used in the English Bible, cross it and write nations. Because really that's what it's talking about, the nations coming to the Lord and the witness to the nations. That's what the word Gentile actually means. 
But he says, keep from defiling the Sabbath and keep his hand from doing evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. No, let the eunuch say here, I am a dry tree. Now, why do you think Isaiah brings these two people, the foreigner and the eunuch? Why are they in this passage? What do we know about the foreigner and the eunuch, according to God's law? The ceremonial law did not allow the foreigner or the eunuch to worship God in the public worship of God. They were, they were outcasts. They could not be. And in this passage, he says, no, I'm going to bring them in. And the sign of that is the keeping of the Sabbath. Among the Gentiles, among those who cannot come to worship the Lord currently, I'm going to welcome them. And a sign of that is their keeping of the Sabbath. That's why then in chapter 58, based on God's covenant, Isaiah issues a call to repentance and says, if you turn away from your, from, uh, your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure in my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself to the Lord. It's interesting that we read that, and this rubs us wrong. It cannot be about me? That's really what rubs us wrong about the Sabbath. It cannot be about me? It has to be about the Lord? And we may not express those words, but usually that's what... It's not a theological opposition to the Sabbath. Most of the time, we find a theological opposition in order to justify a personal opposition to having a day that's all about the Lord... Not about me. Legalism, we claim. When we just don't want to. No, we're like, <coughs> I don't want to. It's more uh, like it than uh, uh, any theological claim uh, there. And noticing that observing the Sabbath is a delight and a blessing according to God in this passage. It's, it's not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a a burden. It's not something that we just suck it up and do it because we're faith to the Lord. It's not something that we do with, a, oh man, I wish I was doing anything else, but I'll do this just because. No, it's a delight because God gives us that. Any questions or comments about the things that I have said so far? Yes, Scott. Right, yes, though it's not relevant, relevant to what we're talking about here uh, at this moment. Yeah, yes, I did read the verse out loud, yes. yes. Anything directly relevant to what we are discussing here uh, this morning, what I've said uh, so far? Now, what is one of the main arguments is that the New Testament doesn't talk about the Sabbath, as if somehow God had to say something twice before it's true once, right? The New Testament doesn't talk about the Sabbath, therefore we're New Testament people, we shouldn't follow that. The problem is that that's not even true. The, uh, we're going to look at this. These are just the passages in which Jesus himself addressed the Sabbath. And we're going to look at them at some point, either today or next week. 
The amount of times that Jesus took to deal with the Sabbath shows how important it was for him. And this is not just a reactive way. He seems to have gone out of his way to poke people in order to bring up a Sabbath discussion. And in none of these passages said, Pharisees, you got it all wrong. I'm here. The Sabbath is done. He did say, Pharisees, you got it all wrong. But not because they were trying to observe the Sabbath, but the hard attitude and the way that they were observing the Sabbath. Not that they were, but how uh, they, they were. It shows how wrong the people, these passages show how wrong the people he was dealing with were. So, so far I think most Christians are in agreement with what I've said, I think. Since uh, kind of in quoting scriptures and reading scriptures and so on. I think most scriptures. Now, what starts having problems is what the, the, the confession says next, where it says that God appointed one day in seven as a perpetual commandment, the perpetual part. Everybody agrees there was a Sabbath that was established in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament people of God kept the Sabbath. They agree that the people that Jesus ministered to were also keeping the Sabbath, but somehow a lot of people think that there's a big, this, a big disjunction, a big breaking with the Old Testament scriptures in, in Acts chapter 2. Somehow something new started in Acts chapter 2, even though... Peter says that uh, we're doing this because the Old Testament told us this is going to happen, but they believe there's this big break in Acts chapter 2 that somehow eliminates everything that's said before. Is the perpetual part that, that tends to get in people's ways of understanding the Sabbath. Uh, the Confession again says in the, the bold and underline, as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, but in all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for our Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. So the fourth commandment is a perpetual commandment. One of the reasons is that, that it's part of the Ten Commandments. I've never heard somebody trying to make an argument that the first commandment is not for us anymore because we are a new, new dispensation or a new, new institution, a new phase of God's church, so the first commandment is not for us anymore. Or the second. Or the fifth. Parents love the fifth commandment, right? Uh, uh, I haven't seen anybody say, you know what? We're a New Testament people. Murder is okay. But somehow we decided that the fourth commandment is the only one that's not perpetual. That does not binding on us today. And if you stop to think about it, there's no real reason to think about that. So the fourth commandment is perpetual because they're part of the Ten Commandments, but they're also perpetual because the scriptures tell us that it is perpetual. Uh, this is, uh, the whole passage acts as 31 through uh, 12 through 18, but this is the, uh, uh, the part that I want to emphasize. Speaking about the Sabbath, Moses says, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the rest, of the rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Perpetual covenant. Whatever view of the Sabbath you have, you have to deal with this word, perpetual. 
what does forever mean? That's what the word perpetual is. What does forever mean? So we have to deal with that. Now, how is forever, how is the now included in forever? You can't just say, oh, it's not for me because I'm New Testament Christian. Unless you're going to say that the Old Testament is not the part of the Bible, you have to deal with this. How is this, is how the Sabbath day part of a, being a perpetual covenant and a sign between God and his people forever? So the Bible explicitly says it's a perpetual covenant. And the fourth commandment is perpetual because the theological basis for its existence is perpetual. Why is it the fourth commandment exists? Because God is a creator and God is a redeemer. That's why the fourth commandment exists. We saw that in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Has God ceased to be a redeemer? Praise the Lord, he hasn't. Has God ceased to be the creator God? He hasn't. Those are the basis for the fourth commandment. As long as those things are true, the fourth commandment remains to be true as well. And, as, and the third thing, as long as man exists, as long as humanity exists, there will be a reason for the Sabbath. Our Lord says that. He said to them, this is Christ speaking, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was made for men. As long as man, humanity exists, then the Sabbath will exist as well. So this command is a perpetual commandment. And you have to figure out how that, perpetua, that perpetuity, that foreverness, applies to us today. Any questions on that before we continue? Jerry. Can you define work? Yes, but not now. Okay. <laughs> we will do that. Okay. okay. Amy. So hold on. I have to do what Jerry asked me to do on Wednesday. Jerry asked if I could define work. And I said, not now. Right? So that the people here listening to the recording. Yes, Amy. So the uh, question is, um, in heaven, is, is, there, is the one in seven pattern going to continue of six days of work, one in of rest? And the answer is no, if we're looking at heaven as the eternity, eternity, like the Bible uses them, the physical, resurrected existence of God's people worshiping him. No, because the entirety of it would be the seventh day, would be the Sabbath. The Sabbath now exists because of eternity. Once that comes, we don't need the thing that points to it anymore. And we're going to see that more clearly when we look at Hebrews chapter 4, where it says there's a Sabbath rest that remains for us, because there's a Sabbath rest that remains in the future, then the sign of it, what points to it, continues today. Jonas. Does that, uh, would you say that unbelievers are called to be in church on Sunday, even as unbelievers? The Ten Commandments are universal. So, are unbelievers called to have no other gods before the Lord God of the Bible? So yes. You, so, all the Ten Commandments apply to every, every hum, human being. Everybody's called to obey God's law. Would you make a distinction between just resting on the Sabbath and being at church? Yeah, we're going to take a... So, is there a difference between just resting on the Sabbath and being at church? We're going to take a look at what, are the, what the purpose of the Sabbath is, and that will include both rest and worship. You're not doing one of those, you're breaking the Sabbath. Okay. Anything, any other questions I can say that we're not going to answer right now? Um, <laughs> yes, Adam. <laughs> uh, 
being a New Testament Christian who doesn't have to follow the Sabbath mm -hmm. um, may have to do with Paul saying things that, say, for example, in Colossians 2.16, don't let anyone judge you mm -hmm. for not keeping certain things. Correct. Because they're a shadow of things to come. Correct. So it's not, it's not that Jesus didn't teach it, it's that Paul sort of said yeah. And then, then, but then you're assuming that that's what he's talking about, right? The yeah. weekly Sabbath day. But when you compare it for the rest of Colossians, as we're going to do later on, uh, it, uh, you're going to see that he's talking about the ceremonial law, the, 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 the holy days, the, the feasts, the extra day. Uh, the, the weekly Sabbath was not the only Sabbath that was there. There were several other Sabbaths that took place that was related to the ceremonial law that was not prescribed in the moral law in the Ten Commandments. And that's what Paul says. Hey, look, we have Christian liberty. If you want to have, if you want to celebrate, the, the problem, the close analogy is this. If you want to celebrate Easter and Christmas, go ahead. If you don't, go ahead. Both can be done for the glory of God. That's the idea. Don't, don't judge each other for the holy days they keep. Um, you know, within, you know, if you want to keep uh, uh, Ramadan, probably that would be a problem. But, uh, you know, within reason, don't judge each other for, for that. He's talking about, the, if you look at the argument of Colossians 2, he's talking about those kind of things, not the moral law. Because nowhere else he says, and, you know, don't judge each other for murdering each other. Don't judge each other for committing adultery. It actually says the, the opposite. Judge each other for those things. So, that, that's, he's referring to those extra holy days that you're supposed to, to keep according to the Jewish law because the big thing that the, Paul is facing in Colossians is a Jewish heresy that was very mystical and tried to force on Christians the observance of, of these holidays in a very mystical way as if that was necessary for their justification before God. Very similar to what he finds in, Col in Galatians. This Galatians is more explicit than in Colossians. Are you okay with it? Okay. All right. <clears throat> All right. So the next thing that our confession says is that from creation to the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath day was the seventh day, um, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. Uh, the seventh day was chosen because of the creation pattern. Uh, God rested from his creative work on the seventh day and tells his people to do so. And the fact that the Jewish people observed the Sabbath on the last day of the week is evident from the Old Testament. New Testament, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time showing from the Bible. That's what they did. And does anybody have any questions about the fact that uh, in the Old Testament, even in New Testament times, uh, Jewish people kept the Sabbath on the seventh day? All right. Good. So we'll move on to the next part. That was Heather's question last week. From the resurrection of Christ, that was changed into the first day of the week, our confession says. And from the resurrection of Christ, was changed into the first day of the week, which is in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Um, often when our confession uses the expression the end of the world, they mean the end of the age. It's an old King James kind of way of talking about the end of the age. So after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostolic church worshipped on the first day of the week. Uh, th this is more than just descriptive evidence. It is a the day that was sanctioned by the apostles to be a special day dedicated to 
worship the Lord publicly and privately. What I'm going to do next is to prove to you that the New Testament church worship on the first day of the week. That's not the same thing as saying that the first day of the week is a Sabbath. That's going to be the next step. Okay, so right now we're going to look at the Bible and see that Christians are to worship on the first day of the week. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to connect the first day of the week to the Sabbath day through Hebrews chapter 4. That's, that's the plan. Okay? So if you say, but teacher, well, all you said doesn't prove that Sunday is the Sabbath. And I'll say, yep, because that's, I just told you that. <laughs> all we're going to see is that Christians worship, must worship on the, day, the first day of the week. So some evidence for the change of the day, at least for first day worship. Our Lord rose on the first day of the week. It's interesting that uh, it's it used a, 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 a Greek term that could mean days. It's an uncommon way. But the way that the, all, uh, all evangelists that talk about the resurrection of Christ in the four Gospels says, on the first of the Sabbath. That's the literal Greek translation. Though it could mean the first of the days. Sometimes the word Sabbath was used for the different days. Unusual, but sometimes it was used that way. But literally, the Greek goes, the first of the Sabbath, the Lord came back to, to life. Um, his early appearances to the saints came on the first day of the week. Remember that? That when he appeared to them was a week later. Uh, well, on that first Sunday, then the following Sunday in John says that on the, uh, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And so he appeared to them on the first day of the week. The disciples were gathered, but Thomas wasn't there. Remember the story. And, and then he didn't appear to them again until the following Sunday when Thomas was present. And the impression you get is that Thomas should have been there. That Thomas not being gathered with the apostles on the first day of the week was wrong of Thomas. And then, it, again, he shows up again in the next week. Uh, so these two appearances tell us that all the apostles were together on the first day of the week. And that Jesus chose to only appear to them in those days instead of somewhere in between during the week. So a pattern is being set here. Following these appearances, it became the habit of Christians to meet for worship on the first day of the week. Paul instructed the churches to collect money for the needy, and they were to do so on the first day of the week. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Remember Paul, one of the things that he's doing as he's traveling around is trying to raise money to the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church also is a very poor church that could not provide for itself, and to show uh, uh, some goodwill between the Gentile churches and the Jerusalem church, he went through the Gentile churches and collected money to bring to supply for the needs of the people in Jerusalem. And when he writes to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 16, says, when you meet on Sunday, I better read so that you can hear straight from the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, it says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. It's interesting that it's not, uh, he gave orders, and that's something that must be done. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But it is fitting that I go also, they, they will go with me. So the churches in Galatian Corinth were to take a, the collection on the first day of the week because that is when they habitually gathered together to worship. It just made sense 
since they always gather on the first day of the week to do that then. Instead of calling a, f- a special meeting for the offering, it says when you meet on the first day of the week, as you usually do, take the offering at that point for the Jerusalem church. It, also notice that Paul doesn't say do something new in taking the offering. He says as you do, make sure that you also give money to the Jerusalem church as, as if you know, collecting money on the worship of the Lord was already part of what the church did at that time. When Paul traveled to Jerusalem for the last time and wanted to say bye to the Christians in Troas, he waited till the first day of the week to do so. In Acts 26 through 8 says this, We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued this message until midnight. So it seems like he got there on the Monday, but he waited till Sunday to meet with them. Why? Because that's when they were gathered together to worship the Lord. How we know that they were gathered together to worship the Lord? It says they gathered to break bread. Now, break bread can mean something else, but it seems to assume a very technical term for the Lord's Supper. Uh, and says they were specifically got together to break bread to worship uh, the Lord there. Uh, it's interesting to read uh, Acts 20, because uh, Luke is narrating there. He keeps on saying that he preached at midnight, and then Luke says, and there were many lights, lamps in the room. You can see kind of Luke getting bored. It's been a long day. He's preaching for hours, and Luke starts counting the lights. Have you ever done that? Don't you start kind of counting the tiles or the lights or whatever, um, because you're so bored. And eventually, is that Eutychus? The fall off, falls off the... So that's, that'd be a lesson. Falling asleep in church may lead to death, your own death. That's a biblical there in Acts chapter 20. But we, we di- digress. So, yeah. You know, that pew in front of you, hit it, you know, concussion and stuff like that. So, uh, One more thing. When, when John was exiled in Patmos... He received an incredible revelation on the Lord's Day. The book of Revelation was given to him on the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, the verse doesn't explicitly talk about the first day of the week, but shortly, very shortly, within the first century, uh, in, within the, the early second century, so shortly after the writing of the book of Revelation, the term Lord's Day appeared in all over Christian literature, both east and west, the both churches, uh, as the official title for the first day of the week. And when John says that he was in the Spirit, that's a substitute for I was worshiping the Lord on that day. Any questions about the evidences that the New Testament church worshipped on the first day of the week? Jim? What was that? For the uh, was... Troas, yeah. uh, Acts 20, 6 through 8. Thank you. Any other questions about the evidences that the Christians worshipped in the, the New Testament, worshipped on the first day of the week? All right, so the question remains is what they were doing a continuation of the fourth commandment. Now, it's easy to, easy to establish that the apostolic church met for worship on the first day of the week, and that the apostles sanctioned that, that day as a day of worship. But is that the Sabbath? Walter Chantry 
raised that question when he, said, he says, This example of the apostles and of the early church is easy to note. However, questions persist. Was the Lord's Day something entirely new, having nothing to do with the fourth commandment? Did early Christians recognize any obligation to keep an entire day holy, now the first day? Was the fourth commandment to, reign, to remain in effect, but the day of the week for Sabbath observance to change? Would such a change of days from seventh to first utterly de de demolish the fourth commandment? Is Seventh-day worship so much of the essence of the Fourth Commandment that abandoning it for the first day worship will cause the entire law to crumble and disappear? These are questions that Walter Chantry asked in his book called The Sabbath uh, Delight. Now, to answer these questions that uh, doc, uh, Mr. I don't know if he's a doctor, so call him, Mr. Chantry asks, we really need to understand the theology of the Sabbath as presented in the New Testament. Because the New Testament unfolds the Old Testament. So, uh, as some have said, the New Testament is in the Old contained, and the Old Testament is in the New. It's supposed to rhyme, but explained. Yes, I couldn't figure out what, how they're going to rhyme that. So, uh, we see the theology from the Sabbath explained in uh, the New Testament. But even before I do, we do that, let's review what we've, we already know, what we've covered so far. We've seen that God's command to keep an entire day holy each week is embedded in the heart of the commandment, which is a perpetual code of morality. It's forever. It's given to us forever. Right? So we see that already. Okay? We also have seen, it's implied in that, that the, the other nine are moral perpetual laws. Uh, none of us, I think, are arguing that uh, we are to, we are okay, it's okay to have other gods besides the God of the Bible. I don't think any of us are arguing right now that uh, we can worship God through statutes. I don't think any of us are arguing that it's okay to take the Lord's name in vain or to uh, dishonor parents or to commit adultery or to lie or to steal or to murder or to practice covetousness. Right, right now, we all agree that the other nine are perpetually and moral, moral code of conduct. We also saw that uh, those closest in, with Jesus, the apostles, began to worship on the first day of the week instead of the seventh, and the church has done so ever since. One thing that uh, I think we all can say is that the New Testament constantly appeals to the Ten Commandments when it speaks of righteousness, especially in the, uh, the epistles. Paul and the other epistle writers are often um, grounding their ethical teaching on the Ten Commandments. Even says this is how the fulfillment of love is the keeping of the law. For example, Paul says in the book of Romans, and says that in Galatians as well. John says that in 1 John. So you can see that the uh, New Testament constantly appeals to the Ten Commandments when it speaks of righteousness. Now, some other things that we kind of talked about, but not a lot is that Jesus kept the Sabbath as a day of worship. Jesus himself kept the Sabbath as a day of worship. Not just a day of rest, but as a day of worship. In, remember the episode in Luke chapter 4, where he comes into the synagogue in Nazareth? This is what Luke tells us in Luke 4, 16. He, talking about Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as, he, as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So his custom was to go to the synagogue to worship God on 
the Sabbath day there. Jesus taught about the Sabbath quite a, few, quite a bit, and we mentioned that briefly. And I want to take a look at that for the last four minutes that we have. Uh, grab your Bible, if you could, and turn to Mark chapter 2. Look at uh, verse 23. Mark 2, 23 says, Now it happened, it's funny that Mark says, Now it happened as if it was happened by accident, right? It just happened, just happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. As if, you know, Jesus said, oh, man, we're in the grain field. I didn't know that we're going through here now. That's some accident. And we know that uh, that's something that was done on purpose. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Baathar, high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying here? One, he's not saying, he's, he's stepping into the Pharisees' presupposition that they, they probably believed that David had broken God's law by eating that bread. So Jesus steps in that there. But what he's doing here is actually helping them interpret the law properly. That David actually did what was right because God loves mercy as well as obedience. And that his eating of the bread was not a breaking of the law. And we need to interpret what we read in 1 Samuel in light of what Jesus says. The second thing he says is that the, the Jesus is the Lord. Of, the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath. So whatever he says... We follow because he's the Lord of it. He's the master of it. He's the owner of it. And notice that he could have very well have stopped the interaction by saying, my people do not have to keep the Sabbath. And he never said that. He said, you are keeping it wrong. Let me teach you how you should do it properly. Look at Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, and look at verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he said, he laid his lands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which man ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath that loses his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it. For 18 years be loosened from this bond on the Sabbath. 
Notice that Jesus did not deny the existence of Sabbath. He interpreted it correctly. He said the Pharisees are hypocrite because they are understanding it wrongly, not because they were keeping it, trying to keep it. And that's important that we let the Lord of the Sabbath be the Lord of the Sabbath when he teaches on it. Uh, you can look at Luke 14, 1 through 6, John 5, 1 through 18, John 7, 14 through 24. These are all um, uh, different occasions in the life of Jesus in which he taught on the Sabbath, never to deny the existence, but to properly interpret how the Sabbath day should be taught. So, I clearly taught that you that thought that the fourth commandment has to be reckoned with, with because it's part of the Ten Commandments, and it's where Patrick commands. So we have to reckon with it. I also have clearly taught that the New Testament church taught that met to worship on the first day of the week, and I also have shown to you that Jesus Christ often taught on the Sabbath. Now, next Lord's Day, Lord, when we're going to connect those two first day worship with the Sabbath day. Any last questions? All right, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for um, giving us this gift, the marketplace of the soul on your day. We pray that as we worship you in the following uh, services, that we would uh, do it for your glory, and that you'd bless us for our good, for asking Jesus' name. Amen.